Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode four, Life is Hard. about the subject matter. Two have already been suggested. If you don't like them, say so immediately. One is the subject matter of, of inertia. You know about inertia? <laughs> and the other one is a saying which a young man read recently, which he thought was brilliant and worth living by. Life is hard and ends in death. (laughs) I asked him what he liked about it and he said a very intelligent thing. He said, if life is hard, I can take it. And I don't care if it ends in death. And if life is not supposed to be hard, I can't work out why people are so horrible. If life is hard, accept it and fight the good fight with all thy might. But if it is not hard and people are just being horrible to me on account of their own peculiar dispositions, well then I don't like it. I would rather retire from a non-hard world where people treat me as if it were hard. A hard world I can assimilate. Well, let's examine this one very carefully. The word hard. Normally we start the vowels to clarify the meaning. H-R-D. Same consonants in herod. And harrods. You know about harrods. H-R-D. It means hierarchical discriminative division. Let's think about that very carefully. The universe is hard means that actually there are differences of power and discriminative ability. Some people can think more clearly, see better than others. Some people have more power than others. And that is the exact meaning of HRD. There are differences in the universe of power of discriminative ability and divisive activities arising from these two. You all know that there are differences in height, weight, biochemistry, nervous distribution, emotionality, rationality. All these differ in different people. No two single individuals are identical in any respect. That is meaning the word hard. Now we also know, apart from one or two weird people, like somebody going up to heaven on a chariot, 
and somebody walking with God and we'll see no more, and somebody after crucifixion riding off on a cloud in the sky in the presence of witnesses. Now those are so rare we can discount them. So, life is hard, it's easy to understand, because we know it is, in this sense. It is hierarchical, that is, there are differences of power. It is discriminatively different in capacity. People can't see in the same way, or feel, or think, or will, with the same degree of strength or discrimination. That's hard. Now this question of the certainty of death. Everybody believes that death is certain for most people. Historically, very few have been translated without going through the process of dying. But let's have a look at death. When we see what we call a dead person, we're looking at a body no longer animated by a life principle that was operative perhaps an hour before, or a minute before. A dead person is a non-functioning body. About the life principle that animated the body, we know externally nothing whatever. A person is living, functioning, relating, yes, even relating, with other beings, and suddenly stops. Along comes an expert says, oh, heart attack, oh, thrombosis of some kind, oh, something's gone wrong with the mechanism. And now it is not animate, it is not self-mobilizing, it cannot discriminate, it is just a corpse on the ground. Now, is that saying anything whatever about the life principle that animated that body before it was in a condition called dead? Nobody has ever actually physically seen and attested to and scientifically demonstrated the departure of the life principle from a living body, so the body is then dead. Some of you have been lucky enough to be near a person dying and observed a process. Or you might have picked up a bird in the garden to catch his hand and seen that that bird's eye is bright and looking perhaps terrified, and then quite suddenly, for no reason, the eye suddenly ceases to shine. Have you seen it? Yes. Now, can you believe that sudden departure is something to do with the body, or is it something to do with the interest that the animal had? When you suddenly see the eye lose its shine, nobody is looking out. A second ago, somebody was looking out to the eye of that sparrow at you, apprehensively. But looking, a real, observing, conscious power suddenly withdraws, and then you have a dead body. And most people had some kind of experience like that. And it's a strange fact that there can be an observing, living principle in a body one second, and then depart in the next second. The Masons say, what is this living principle that is in this little sparrow one moment and in the next it is not? The question is, where has it gone? Now, where is the spatial word in ordinary parlance? 
which is not the spatial word in the phonetic value W H R again and that W is a drive letter signifies push drive H R again a hierarchical power so to the question where does intelligence go instead of thinking in terms of space has it gone to another place think it has simply tuned or detuned its hierarchical discriminative power it simply stopped focus on the body it doesn't need to go away down the men or to the Amazon or somewhere far away all it needs to do is detune from the body and the body is then dead think very carefully that word where actually does not mean space in the naive sense where has it gone means how has it detuned itself from this body so that when death occurs so called it would be more correct to say withdrawal of interest has occurred withdrawal of interest I've seen a lot of people dying change their minds under a pep talk <laughs> really it's a question of creating interest if you manage to create interest for a person who is dying could be a trick it could be showing them a photograph from long ago of a one time beloved and say she's still alive she's coming to see you oh pass my comb immediately I'll tidy up before she comes now as soon as you create the conditions of renewed interest you create the conditions of retuning into the body so really the naive sense of death is a false one it's a wrong concept when they say tuning into bodies to use them and tuning away from them when you don't want to use them that accounts for some of the weird cases of people apparently dead coming back to life one of my mother's aunts was such a case in the coffin loaded onto the hearse luckily the bearers were unequal in size and the forward left one was short so the coffin was tilted it hit the edge of the hearse and there was a knocking from inside the coffin now she lived 15 years after she died and been buried which wasn't bad now this question of return is very weird because we can go into states so close to death that an expert couldn't tell the difference we can have suspended breathing suspended heartbeat and still be hanging around in fact we might call it a naughty trick of somebody who's been neglected too long who thinks I'll die I'll show them and promptly goes into one of these conditions and withdrawal of interest and then everybody starts panicking and feeling guilty oh if only I could have behaved better towards this person and then the dead think oh, I'm not so badly horribly missed by these people I think I'll open an eye <laughs> frighten them a bit before I really die and this can happen 
You can have to have a few hours a person. I remember a particular concrete occasion when I was visiting a man in the hospital and he had an operation. It was quite a mild thing. And the doctor said, for some reason he's become depressed. Would you have a word with him? And I had a word and I said, why have you decided to die? Why have you decided to withdraw? And he replied, she's a very strong-minded woman. Now, I knew something of the situation, so I wasn't surprised at the reply. Now, it's half past five in the afternoon, and he was talking to me quite nicely, and then we heard coming down the woods, and he recognized the tap, tap, tap of her heels. And he said, she's coming now. Do you mind if I close my eyes? <laughs> and I said, no. And when she came in, she said, oh, how very kind of you to sit with him while he's in a coma. <laughs> so I got up and left, and at seven o'clock he was dead. He decided not to come back. Why? She was a very strong-minded woman. And I said to her afterwards about this very thing, what would you have done if you could have done? She said, I would have forced him to confess that he wanted to marry me and tell his sister, of whom he's always been terrified, that he wanted to marry me, and then I should have refused him. Now, this is a battle of the living, not the dead. <laughs> God is a God of the living, not of the dead. The dead have no God. Life is hard, hierarchically, discriminatively differentiated. And life ends in what? Withdrawal of interest. Now, that's not so bad, is it? Can we think that life is other than unequal in every respect. Have you ever seen identical twins? Have you seen them born simultaneously? Or one after the other? I saw a couple of girls being interviewed. They were in a circus playing fun ballings of the horse. And when I saw them, I said, Aha, I bet it emerges in this interviews that the girl who plays front legs is born first. And that's how it was. So they asked the girl who played back legs, do you mind? And she said, no, I've always been second. The actual interest was determined by the moment of egress from that sacred place. Hard, simply power, discriminative, differences of capacity. Does anybody doubt that? No? Can I take silence as an agreement? Yes, yeah. I get, suddenly I get a noise, yes. I ask for one, I get nothing. And suddenly I get a yes. How did I get that yes? You asked for an affirmation. I asked for an affirmation. Now there's nothing people like giving more than an affirmation. Why? It confirms them. Very good, Goethe. 
<laughs> you must have heard people arguing like that about something, and finally one says, Oh, I give you that. He said, Give them the argument. They've agreed with it, and gained the victory by agreeing at the end. Oh, I'll allow that. That's very kind of them. So we know what hard means, and that it is a fact. And we know that death is a very much misunderstood term, and that really the process is simply withdrawal of interest. And you can die in part by losing interest in part. Not very long ago, a man said he was going to have a divorce because all sexuality had vanished from their relation. There was now no need to continue the relation because the relation between a man and a woman and there is now no sexual interest, therefore no relation, therefore no marriage, so why not have a divorce? I was out of the person, why if you're not married, you need a divorce. <laughs> Anyhow, I said to him, will you do an exercise for me? Yes, if you will help. I said, it will help. What is the exercise? Do not allow yourself to think of sex in any way for one month. That means you're not allowed to leer at other women, just in case they have a stimulus factor in them. So he agreed to try. And two days afterwards, <laughs> he gave in to the wife. Now, why was that so? Because in forbidding him, something had been done to his energy, interest, had been created. Give it up. You're finished with it. Whatever it is. Don't have any more mouth bars. Deny yourself when you go in the petrol station and see them lay down. <laughs> don't have one. And the eye goes. <laughs> Everything that is forbidden is brought into focus. Now who invented that trick? God. He did it on Adam and Eve. There they were in their primordial innocence, wondering about wondering what the hell to do when a garden had no trouble in it. You didn't even need to garden, everything grew properly. <laughs> By do you know there were no weeds in the garden <laughs> either? And no notice, except one, the serpent, which God had put there because of a no notice. Somebody has to stand in. And the moment they knew there was a tree they had not to eat, convergence. So life is hard, hierarchically discriminatively differentiated, and it ends in withdrawal of interest. And the method of creating interest is by forbidding processes. In the tarot cards, the sixth card is a card of sex. And the high priest who is before it has fabricated a statement, sexuality is forbidden except by ecclesiastical or civil license. This immediately makes everyone think, what on earth is this? If it's forbidden, it must be valuable. Otherwise, why forbid it? So the way of creating interest is forbid. On several occasions, I've been confronted with suicide cases and they were about to commit suicide 
and there's the catfish and said, very dangerous, we land in the coroner's court and we'll be told off for allowing it. What would you say? And I say to this person, have you killed yourself before? Do you remember? No. Have you died before that you remember? No. How do you know that when you're dead, you're dead? Supposing you're not properly dead. <laughs> what condition are you in? Have you ever been in a nightmare and been glad to have a body to wake up into? Mm, of course. Right, we can now change the subject matter from hard life with death at the end to inertia. E-R-T Who's sneaking over there? Are you puzzled about how we got from hard life? Yes, we got the the ERT in inert is simply ERG with the G turned into a T. Now you know that in ERG is a unit of work, isn't it? When you say energy, read it from the back end, it means a firm. Earth, motion of life. Energy. Why a firm? That G should be really hard, and energy. And that means compaction of the motion of the life force. Energy means life force on the move, consolidating itself affirmatively. That's energy. Now, if you get crucified on it, that is identified, so that you have difficulty in breaking it, you turn the G into a T symbolizes a cross or fixation. If you look at your Hebrew alphabet, the last letter of that alphabet is a Tau, and it says by it in a Hebrew lexicon, meaning cross. It means fix it. So, in at means in or within a point motion of a life differentiation nailed, fixated. Crucified. Now inertia, the IA at the end, means affirmation now. Now you know that physically inertia is the tendency to continue to do or not do something unless you are acted upon by an external stimulus. But that is an inertia, that is an affirmation of a crucifixion on a mode of life motion pattern. Inertia means that you're affirming a life-motion pattern that you initially have established and then forgotten about it. The opposite of inertia is initiative. Now, initiative means beginning. Initio, I begin. You start something, that's energy. You converge it, focus it, and let go of it. And the moment you let go of it, it runs on its own with the form of your intention in it. And it is then an inertia. It is an affirmed, fixated, life differentiation motion pattern. That's inertia. Now, has it got any use, an inertia? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, 
Things that remember themselves automatically are inertias. They are things that once upon a time you affirmed because they had a value and you have released the pattern, ordered it, let there be remembrance of where the loo is. And once you've established it as important in life, it is a self-remembering energy, and that is inertia. Now, supposing we had no inertia at all, and there was just pure initiative, no repetition, because initiative is always a fresh start. Initiative is always the beginning of something not previously done. Now imagine an infinite ocean of energy, the energy is sentient, because we can't have a dualism there, the energy is sentient, and therefore we have an infinite ocean of sentient power, power that can feel itself, that's its sentience, power that can mobilize itself. So an infinite ocean of self-mobilizing, self-feeling power. And imagine that that is all initiative, Everything he does is instantly new. There is no recognition. Now, how do you like that? Imagine an infinite ocean of sentient power which is throughout itself entirely pure initiative. And I say, everything he does, he's never done it before. So there's no recognition. Now, how would you like it? You get up, you go out, and you don't say goodbye to anybody because you don't know them. You have not recognized them. In consequence, what kind of a relation is it? If there is one, in an infinite ocean of sentient initiative power. Well, in the Kabbalah, it is described for you under the title Edomite Kings. And the word Edom means do not dome. Do not formulate. And that means, don't tie yourself up so that you can recognize something and then have to obey it because you recognize it. There's my friend over there, Shabbat. Another one behind him, Akim. I've got two recognitions there. Do you know what they do with me? They inhibit my initiative. Do you know, it's true. I know a little bit about you. So I would know how to annoy you and I mustn't do that, must I? So I'm, in, I'm inhibited. And I, and I keep him behind you. He's got two very big Irish wolfhounds, you know that. I bet the pair of them together eat more than he does per week. Am I right, Akeem? How do you feel about that? You feel okay about it? You don't mind keeping other people eat twice as much as you do. Generosity is your middle name, is it? <laughs> you see what I mean? It's possible to tread on thin ice. <laughs> <laughs> All I have to do is extend that. He's not only got two very large wolfhounds, but he's got a wife. <laughs> now, is he as generous in thinking about the wife as he is about the wolfhound? <laughs> See what I mean? Can I get into trouble? Now the Edomites hate trouble. 
so they say, don't let us know anybody. So as soon as they feel a certain recognition, they rush off. And he says rather amusingly, they made an awful lot of worlds before God made this one, but they vanished as soon as they made them. Before they had time to recognize, re-know them, they let go of them, gone, no longer bound. In a very weird moment today, I switched on the television and the red shoes were on. God help us. <laughs> Do you remember it, any of you? I, if you're old enough to remember how bored you were the first time you saw it. <laughs> Anyhow, there it was again. The Guru's new in colour. You know why it was in colour? It was called Red Shoes. We actually had a debate. Should they do this in black and white? And just tint the shoes in when they occurred. Now the recognition those red shoes meant tendency to prostitution in ladies. He was offered by Andrew Warbrook, the career of the most marvellous dancer the world has ever known. And she stayed with him. And he made a speech at the end of that film that really killed me. You remember it? <laughs> She'd thrown herself under a train in despair. Because she couldn't choose between the dancing life and respectable marriage. She'd given herself to the casting couch to get the job in the first place. And she wanted to be respectable as well. She couldn't tolerate this difference of directions. So she mysteriously threw herself of a high place under a train. I couldn't work out in the shot immediately afterwards how she got from where she was in the previous shot to under this train. But there was really no provision for it. But that's artist license. Now imagine Prior to the creation of this world, there was no inertia, there was an infinity of sentient power, and it hated being tied down with anything. So whatever it did, it immediately undid it. And they were called Edomite kings. They were kings because they were the boss of their own nothingness. That's quite a high attainment. To be king of nothing forever. Now those Edomite kings still exist. Do you know what they are in us? The tendency never to finish the job that we start. Have you noticed it? There are real forces that float about in the interspaces of this world saying don't finish it. <laughs> it's true. You know how many times you promise yourself to do something and then don't. And you're quite sure it would be a good thing if you did, but you don't. It would be a good thing, it would improve the universe if you did it, but you don't. Those are Edomites, and they still function. We can't say they exist, because exist means that they stand out. They don't, they're too cunning. They won't stand up because you might recognize them. Now, is there any positive value for inertia? Answer, there is. Yes. 
the inertia of pure logic. We want twice one to be two and a triangle to have three sides, a square to have four, forever. So when we make a sign like this, we say triangle. And when we go like this, we say circle. And we recognize it. We know it again. And by this fact that there are forms that can be renown, we can orientate ourselves in our life. Now let's mentally draw a circle. And let's call that circle the island of Logos. Now Logos means logic. And remember the lambda is consciousness and the gamma is the precipitate of that consciousness as a solid reference point from Rock of Ages. Imagine in the infinite ocean of Edomitish non-recognition there's a special sphere made. And that sphere is going to be consolidated logic. And that sphere is the infinite power self-incarnate as that sphere. There's no other power. So that sphere is simply that power willing to be interested in being a sphere of logical reference. Now we want that logical reference to continue to run itself continuously forever. World without end logic. World without end geometrical principle. World without end mathematical equations. Imagine geometry, logic, mathematics, all referring to a primordial sphere of being in the midst of an infinite ocean of uncommittedness. Now there's an interface, isn't there? Imagine the sphere, and outside the sphere, an infinite non-recognition energy. Where the non-recognition hits the sphere's periphery, what is happening? Can anybody tell me? Imagine that sphere of pure logic, and beyond it, an infinity of non-recognized, non-committed energies continuously dissolving. But when they hit that sphere, periphery, it's going to upset them a bit. Right, so now we know the human being is a microcosmos of the macrocosmos. This is a great law in occult philosophy, analogy. Man is a little universe inside a big universe and there is nothing in man that is not everywhere and there is nothing anywhere that is not in man. So in man we have a sphere of logic and a sphere of annoyance on the edge of it. Isn't this our problem? We have an infinity of initiating energies that don't want to be bored by repetition. And we have a sphere of logic always saying the same thing. When somebody said to Socrates, you bore me. You all say the same things about the same things. And Socrates had nothing to say except about the same things I always will. He was committed to logic. Nietzsche said about him, that proves he was the final evidence of the collapse of Greece. 
Greek civilization has now proved itself fundamentally weak. Why did Nietzsche say that? Because the Greeks actually had a concept of the Logos that was not quite correct. The Logos has an attained finite, not an ever-extending infinite Logos. So they thought they then knew about things. A bit like the 18th century encyclopedia makers in France. They thought they could gather all the knowledge of the world, gathered by men, and put it in a collection of volumes. It would then be human wisdom complete, you know, like buying the Britannica and believing everything in it, and committing it to memory. How would you feel if somebody gave you uh, 19, well, is it 85, is it? It's 85. I can never keep up with these dates. And you get the very latest Britannic, and you read it all the way through and commit it to memory. You are now infinitely wise. Are you? No. Why not? Something's happened. Somebody rewrote the history of Russia after Stalin died. Somebody rewrote German history after Hitler. And so on. History's been rewritten many times. And, and the, I was very lucky once. I got the whole of the Encyclopedia Britannica for fifteen pounds. Not bad, was it? And said that about ninety percent of it is out to date and untrue. You should read the article on atomic physics in it. <laughs> Imagine a, a book that says to you, "We know all things." Think of Diderot. He's really gussy now. And in his encyclopedia, the word laser doesn't occur. What would you think about that? What would he think about light drilling holes in steel? Wouldn't you be a bit puzzled? Right. So we're going to change the naive concept of Logos as a statically attainable final statement to another kind of Logos, which is infinitely expanding truths which it is creating as it expands. It retains them all that it's made in the past, but it's got an infinitely expanding new world. Behold, I make all things new. There is no final statement that can be made that you can learn, seize, and say, now I know everything. So I can have a rest. Because the universe is sentient power, expanding and evolving by its own will, its own operation, new truths that have never been known before. I'm old enough to remember people arguing about the World War. Nobody thinks about it these days. I once did some illustrations for Rock's Drift. You ever heard of Rock's Drift? Oh, somebody has. How funny. So now let's keep this Logos. The Logos is not static. It's expanding, but all the time, when it's expanding, what's happening in its expansion? What's happening to the Edomite kings outside when the Logosphere is expanding? 
Is the Logos not entering their territory? Is it not stealing their energy? And committing them to new evolutions, logics, forms, maths, geometries. Now, man is a microcosm containing all these things in himself. So, in us there is a logosphere expanding. Every time we get a new idea, a new viewpoint, we expand our mind and with it our being. But every time we do so, we take some previously unformulated, uncommitted energy in us and threaten it with committal. Now, how do we feel? Have you got any three energies in you that you know about that don't like committal? Now, man is in this very peculiar position as a microcosm because on the one hand, he has this infinitely expanding logosphere, the so-called numinal world of Plato, and down below the concrete, solid earth, a man is between, between, be two. Man has this peculiar fact. He has already gained a certain amount of logic since he swung in the trees, and a lot of energies have been trapped by his newly acquired logics, and they don't like it. They really do hate being trapped in decent, logical, geometrical, mathematical behavior. I've got a, a manuscript which I've never offered to a publisher yet. It's called The Mathematics of Love. I'm asking the ladies specifically. How would you like to know that it's possible to analyze the love life of a woman in pure mathematics with graphs? How does it feel? You'd like to believe it, <laughs> but can you? I might release this manuscript on you one day, Greta. Because <laughs> it definitely proves it. You never had a feeling, not even a fantasy, that was not logically analyzable and predictable. And isn't that awful? From the point of view of the uncommitted energy, Now, it's a hard world, and finally there's withdrawal of interest from it by active will, usually, but not necessarily. You can decide to live longer if you wish, or die earlier if you wish. There's an old saying, live until you die, because in fact most people don't. They don't commit themselves to the living process while they're still vaguely interested in remaining in the body. But to become aware that you're committing you into the body is very important. And what does it do to commit ourselves to a physical body? Remember what we said? There's an infinite ocean of sentient power, of initiative, uncommitted, and it's in a perpetual flux, 
with no recognizables in it and therefore no cognizable identity. So you have no sense of a I and no directive, no goal, no purpose. Now, when we have converged this energy like that into an ovum and a sperm and can join them, haven't we made for ourselves a reference point? And isn't this the cause of our tendency to hang on to our bodies when somebody attacks them? Now, the virtue of having a physical reference point, a body of reference, is because without it, we are in continuous danger of nightmarish uncommittedness. You know, just like in certain types of nightmares, when you're on the run from unknown assailants, not even definables, vague unknowables. They're not nothing at all. Their energy is uncommitted. And they are threatening your committedness. And the committedness is terrified that those non-committed energies will seize the committed part and tear it to pieces. You know, Grendel's mother in the Beowulf thing mentioned a very horrible old haggish type. Haggish, haggish type. <laughs> old lady, can you imagine it? Who hates logic, hates everything, especially housework. And she's an appetible, terrible power. And a hero called Beowulf has polished off one of her progeny. She's a bit annoyed. Her infinite ocean of sentient power is under threat. How well does she fight? Hard. With a hierarchical discriminative differentiation. <laughs> so Beowulf, if he's not careful, he's going to get clawed. Now these myths, these fairy stories, are just different versions of the same things that we find in religious scriptures. They're all stories about how uncommitted appetite is terrified of committal, because committal means logical structure. But if we remember our definition of logos as not a static attainable form, but an infinitely expanding sphere, of ever new possibilities without loss of the old ones, you store those in memory, but capable of, of entertaining you forever with new forms you've never seen, while still retaining the old ones. So you open yourself to the newness of creative possibility without losing the memory of all the things you have already done. So you're then committed and uncommitted. You solve the problem. Now that problem is solved in the word used in Indian philosophy, Purna. Remember Purna? P-U-R-N-A. P-U-R means city. It means structure. It means logos. Na means snake. Sensuousness. Sinews. Twistings and avoidings of committal. And it says, all attained yogis arrive at the same ultimate enlightenment. It's all Purna. 
every structure is made by appetite for the time being and then transcended with another creation without destroying the old one. How do you feel about that one? We've got our cake and we eat it. Now it says that in the riddle of Samson, out of the eater came forth meat, out of the strength, sweetness. Now the eater is the Edomitish appetival uncommittedness, trying to eat, digest means break down into bits, eat, digest, assimilate and excrete. The digestive process tells you the whole thing in one simple analogy. This uncommitted energy, every time it sees committed energy, wants to eat it, that is, grab it, bite it, destroy it, screw acid on it, and throw out a formless mess, which is the manure for the next world. How do we feel about this when we say man is a microcosm? Although we have said is true of every individual. Appetite is destroying all logic. And logic is surviving. When you've eaten it, the one that has eaten it has digested it, has analyzed it, found out what it is and stored it in his memory. That's a further thing to be avoided in the future. So the uncommitted energy is perpetually on the run. The name for the running snake is Hanna. The name for the rotating snake making a meatball is On, O-N. Anapurana. The running snake makes the city for the snake to live in. Like Cain, after he murdered his brother, built a city to protect himself. And inside he bred children that were murderers like he was. Now we cannot get rid of this polarity of an infinite, unformed, appetible, sentient power and within it a sphere of already defined, attained form. And no matter how much that uncommitted energy tries to break down the sphere of logic, eat it, and excreted, it doesn't get rid of the logic of the digestive process. So it's actually going about sowing tomato plants after every tomato meal. You know how marvelous it is that many, many seeds that we eat are encased in a digestive resistant shield, aren't they? That means that logic can protect itself by putting itself in the form we call seed. That means every little ovum, every little sperm is actually a pocket of logic. And appetite is tried like Herod to murder it, destroy it. But it has superb protection. Think you put that seed in your thumb and you squirt acidite viciously and it goes merrily through and the acid doesn't bite through it. So you get your tomatoes later. 
And there is no way that man, the microcosm, man, the little universe, can escape this duality in his being. A duality of function, and this function of gathering together, that's the logic, and a function of scattering what has been gathered together. But every time a sphere is gathered together, it makes a logical, self-consistent system that can be logically defined in all its parts. And then, when it tries to destroy it, to eat it, to digest it, what it excretes is full of seeds of logic. We have no escape. Yeah. And we have this type inside us. Now, how many times do we remember this when we have what is called a difference of opinion between uh, ourselves and our near and dear ones? Do we remember that life is hard? That our partner is hierarchically discriminatively divided from us and that it is actually eternally impossible for one person to control from outside another person's internal volitional motivation. Absolutely impossible. Now it's not believed that it's impossible by most people. They think they can devise a technique, a little manipulation, a little emotional trickery. And they can influence people from outside by things thought, said, done, emoted. But that is utterly and eternally impossible because every being is the seed of Logos. One of the Logos spermaticos. A little sphere of logic is the very essence of the human soul. How do we feel if we think that actually, internally, in our own being, we need never be afraid of anybody, in any way, because we have an indestructible center of Logos in us. And this is our personal, individuated rock of ages. Can you believe it? And if you believe it, how do you feel? Nobody can take you away from you. Nobody can intimidate you unless you encourage them to do so by identifying with the threat. We live in the notion of power. The power is sentient. When it swirls around, it makes spheres. When it flows without swirling, it makes waves. And it oscillates between the waveform and rotatory form. And we can learn to gain an absolute control over the sentient power in our own being by referring to the Logos seed inside us. We have an absolutely impregnable, unassailable, unbreakable, impenetrable logic seed in each one of us. And it's unique. It's the very, very essence of individuation. How do we feel about it? I feel okay. I'm absolutely, without needing to frown, I'm absolutely convinced that nobody I've ever met or could ever meet can change my mind contrary to my will. Not with all the bribery and corruption and offers and seductions. It is impossible to do it. 
And when I disagree with somebody's opinion about my opinion, I don't need to scowl to make myself strong. Torture. Another interesting word, it means twist. Well, you've got an erroneous idea, haven't you? You've identified with the body being tortured. You've not identified with pure consciousness, have you? Oh, no, if you're at an uncertain level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm, interesting. Well, I had a friend, and he was very fond of surgery. He had no education and no possibility to thought of becoming so. And he was telling me how he loved the thought of being a surgeon. And I went out and bought him some surgical knives, and I said, very expensive actually they were, like good ones are. And the first thing he did was open and look at them, gaze with admiration, and then he started on his own finger to take skins off one by one. And he had such good eyesight he could do it. And with his wonderfully sharp knives, he took one skin, another, another, until there was only one left and the blood was pulsing visibly underneath it. And he said, I won't cut that one, it's my last one. <laughs> and he'd done that. Ken laughed and he knows that fellow quite well from the past. He managed to cut himself when somebody else had been doing it and said, you're torturing me. Whether you're tortured or not depends on whether you think that you have initiated the process or somebody else is initiating it without your permission. You know, during the intuition, very often, when they were torturing people, the tortured person fell asleep and had to be waking up to become conscious of being tortured. It is very annoying to the torturers. Can you believe it? Well, by practice, you can actually do it. And there's a very good Buddhist exercise about that, where you imagine the worst death you can think of. And I said this to a young fellow here one day, tell me the worst death you can think of. And he said, burning to death. And I said, okay, um, visualize yourself burning to death. And he was sitting on a computer. And I said, you're not actually burning to death now, are you? No. And can you imagine flames visually and deliberately candid out the memory of being burned? And you know, although he wasn't burning, he didn't like the idea of imagining he was burning. And he saw the logical. So he went through the action. And when you do that, you actually don't care if you do burn. You know, one of our masters put his hand in the flame and said, You sign mine. You take away, you burn first. That's piece of English It's only a matter of this. If you are centered, you know you have two stones. Some two terms are jiva for your empirical lower egoic self and atman for your true high eternal self. Now if you focus in the lower self, you're terrified of your body being ill-treated. You know the story of the German girl being raped by a begging army soldier 
said to him, you haven't touched my soul. That meant to say she had not identified you. That was all. Most of the damage has been raped, not done by the physical act, but by the moralizing behavior of people around about. How do you conceive yourself? Adequate knowledge equals activity equals happiness. Inadequate knowledge equals passivity equals misery. If I annoy somebody so much, they start beating me up. And I know I've done it on purpose. It's not so bad, I'm not surprised. I had a brother who was that big of me. Three and a half years older than I am, big enough to beat me when I started. <laughs> but he never cured me of annoying me. I didn't mind being thumped, but the harder he thumped, the more I endured it, because he only thumped me very hard when I annoyed him very much. And little annoyance didn't get me a big thump. So I think I've having new terrible things. You know? <laughs> You know, you don't have to be passive to be told things. You should actively annoy people. To make them act against you. To convince yourself of your own activity in the situation. Now God is called supreme because he's actually supreme. He's pure act. There's no passivity in God. Now how about this one? God made the matter, out of which he made the world. Now matter is only energy rotating. And when he made that matter, it was a certain amount of his energy committed to being passive. Now how was it feeling when he knew that it had been created to be back? When he said, Read unto me as under the handmaid of the Lord. So, help me. If that will help your enlightenment, okay? That's the voice of matter. To free me to spirit. Now, if wives could learn that one, they'd be very, very good. When their husband was raving mad and picking up, if it helps you all the psychological development here, tampon. Now, how would he react to that? Isn't the essence of his desire to thump? We shall prove its superiority as a power. It must not be allowed to have nothing. Something against resistance and despair. Now that's real psychology. When somebody's having a knock at you, it's very interesting. Uh, would it help you to tell you the sensations I get? Well, he's enlightened. And that usually causes him to rush out to his pub. Or somewhere far away from his threat of truth. So to your question, how do you go on under torture? The answer is you remind yourself that you put yourself there. You did. Take a, a baby that's uh, an ovum sperm get together. And there is a Resident consciousness in them, which is neither the ovum, separately, nor the sperm, separately, 
that is sentient power that is taking those two and put them together and organize them into a child. Hadn't it put itself in a position where it can be tortured? Really to examine the situation beforehand? Or did it fall into Through lack of observation. Now if it fell into it through lack of observation, it doesn't deserve it. And if it shows it, isn't it glad? This is how we convert ourselves from the misery of passivity to the happiness. Remember, happy means power applied precisely. The old term for that, H-A-P-I. Our word happy derives from that. Happy means hierarchical, power precisely applied. That's happiness. That's activity. No passivity. Nothing is happening to us except that means you will to happen to us and provoke so that we can learn our personal next step. Now how do you feel about culture now? Take practice and time to overcome the inertia. You know in that Mexican earthquake after five days, lots of little babies to take now. Why didn't they die? Do you know why? They lay underneath that rubber and thought, oh, mummy, she's had enough to give birth yet. They didn't have any adult worries. And they thought mummy had gone off it again. Mother Earth. Can you see that? Did you see them on the news Take now and the other one, ready for feeding. If they'd been buried for five days, actually they'd been lounging around in the womb in their imagination. And the, yeah, and the more primitive people are, the more survival they've got. It's the highly educated, highly civilized which are in danger. So this thing shouldn't happen to a civilized, intelligent person. It can happen to me because I'm a fool. I reckon I'm the most primitive person I know in that sense. I really have never given any students whatever to anything offered by educational processes outside. I don't believe them. So they never inhibited me. In that sense, I'm very, very, very primitive. And I could fall asleep in the middle of an earthquake and wait for them to dig me out. And if they didn't dig me out, okay. I'd cross his rock and set him up a perfume, say one neglected corpse, yeah. Hmm. The more primitive we can become, the better for our survival. And the civilized man thinks the opposite. The more high tech he's got, the more survival he's got. The high tech is nuclear bombs. In space world. Isn't there something directly weird about that? The more we know, the less safe we are. I bet there are people somewhere in the world that after the next nuclear war won't you care about this?
through. Hmm? I met one of them somewhere, he's bringing his wife out by the ankle and practicing his skulls and agony. Spontaneously. When they interviewed one of those men in New Zealand, he'd done that, and another one in the Amazon, he said, but it is our custom. <laughs> yes? At Porky, in the Polynesian Islands, a lady is considered to have done her duty, had her children, satisfied the call of nature to multiply, she takes the seaside, they get a big pebble in their back and brains and saying you've done a good job. But they're very kind and compassionate because they let her get drunk first. Good anesthetic. So we've got a very hard world. It's hard, we all agree. And if we accept that fact, we expect from other beings nothing. Except hardness. Which we provoke by the way we relate to them. How many times, sincerely, ask you all, how many times, sincerely, have you in the middle of a disagreement, and I prefer a disagreement, an intimate relationship like boyfriend, girlfriend, man, wife, and so on, an intimate relationship, how often have you managed to get home of yourself and start considering the other person's feelings? How often? Not until it's dinner time, usually. You bury the hatches in your opponent's head, don't you? So we've got hard world, we've got inertia. The positive value of inertia is this. If we didn't have it, we couldn't have recognition of our own being. Now, in that name of God, four-letter word, the first three letters that in Hebrew philosophy are said to be the true essential name of God. God, hey, God. Yahweh. And the final letter, which is the hey, repeating the second letter, is said to be hey in exile, outside the sphere of logic. It's the infinite, uncommitted. And that word, chapter two, Read Anthony Baker says, Who he? He he. God is a master. God is a sentient power which has initiative and logic, that's male, and feeling and physicality, that's female. And when those fall together, you have initiative, intellection, feeling, physicality. The relation like that, those two are male, those two are female. That relation generates the sun animal like this. And the middle finger there is time. If you look on your theological chart, you'll find Saturn is on the middle finger. It means time. Time is generated by energy of initiative, intellect, informative power, of physicality condensation and emotive evaluation. 
initiative, formal intellection, emotive evaluation, physical condensation, in their interplay together, create time. So you put suffering on your living thing, you make it funny animal. Time is nothing but an interplay of those four forces. And those forces are the significance of that tetragonity name of God, which is said to be unpronounceable. And you know why it's unpronounceable? Because the sphere of Logos is infinitely expanding. So it cannot have a term. It's forever wide open to the future. The past is closed in memory. The present is active now, and the future is open to infinite possibilities. How do we feel about that? I remember man is a microcosm. You are a little human being, identical in all respects with the whole big universe. That's that size. But that doesn't matter because the resonance operates between large and small, like it does between double bass and violin. They're always in communication. You are one of those you have inside you initiative, formative intellection, feeling evaluation, which means like this, right? Physical capacity, self-condensation, and through the interplay of those in us as little universes, time is developed by our interrelation of these four forces. In other words, we are actively creating our own self now. We initiate and start from thought process and emotive reaction and volitional intent. And we formulate it, wrap it up so we can define it. We evaluate it emotively as like, dislike, and we then condense it in our physical body as biochemistry. When we do those four processes, we actually create and precipitate the very chemistry of our physical body. Now imagine, as you become progressively more aware of this, and decide to do it, seize the initiative, seize the formative power, evaluate sensitively like this like, and condense your being with your own decision to be. You are a self-creating, self-generating being, a law to yourself, creating a universe unique for you. How do you feel like that? That's the goal of man. When you get it, you're said to be or suicide, or divinized, or immortalized, very terms for it, because you become a self-directed, self-surviving, intelligent part. And then you don't need inertia. Because now you are initiating continuously and leaving the inertia to go along with memory in cosmos. Then you are creating new universes. We've been through many, many universes and many lives and deaths ourselves as individuals. And every time we get reborn, we are reborn into a world that is made of the debris of prior buildings that we have made. That's called karma. 
So we're always dealing with what we ourselves are precipitating for ourselves. Are we any legitimate groundless complaint? None at all. Now can we accept that tightly, realistically, and say, okay, I'm going to give up complaining. I'll stop complaining about myself, my partners, or anybody else. I'll stop complaining. I'll start initiating something worthwhile being. I become a co-operative, co-creator with the absence. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications for future episodes.